A note before we start, this episode contains discussions of a suicide plot point in Wings of Desire. Thanks for listening. Hello, I'm John Waters, and I'm supposed to announce there is no smoking in this theater, which I think is one of the most ridiculous things I've ever heard of in my life. How can anyone sit through a length of a film, especially a European film, and not have a cigarette? But don't you wish you had one right now? Mm, 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 mm. And I'm telling you, smoke anyway. It gives ushers jobs. And if people didn't smoke, there would be no employment for the youth of today. So once again, no smoking in this theater. Mm. Yeah. Has anybody seen a full body picture of him? Because I want to know if he's, if he's uh, you know, short and wide or if he's uh, Mr. Slim Slenders. I think he's kind of a tall All right. Thank you. Yeah. Oh, this is already getting off to a grim grinders. He actually looks exactly oh how you'd imagine somebody who would make this film would look, I think. Like, he has the look down, like the artistic director. And he's, he's yeah. wonderful, and I'll hear nothing bad about him. That guy made Paris, um, Texas, too, which we've that done. That guy made movie. Paris, Texas. Uh, listen, we're, we're spoiling the movie. Um Thank you very much for listening to Trilove, a literal roundtable podcast where we talk about movies we saw or people we met at the Trilon Cinema in Minneapolis, Minnesota. On this episode, we have both. Uh, my name is Jason Daphnis. Uh, I want to look like a German. I want to look anonymous. And you can find me on Twitter at Nintendoofus. I'm Cody Narvison, and I'm never going to become a trapeze artist, but you can find me on Twitter at Cody underscore BH. When the child was a child, it had no opinions on anything, but I am no longer a child. I'm Harry Mackin, and I have opinions on everything. And you can find me on Twitter at Shiitake Harry. And I'm Aaron, and I want to feel what it's like to take my shoes off under a table and wiggle wiggle my toes barefoot. I messed that up, but you can find me on Twitter at uh, RB, please. You really did blow that. Uh, And on today's episode, as I said, we have a person we met at the Trilon. Um, Kelly Krantz is on our episode today. Welcome, Kelly. I can't see you, but I know you're there. I'm Kelly Kranz, and I'm a Trilon volunteer, and my Twitter handle is Kranzakaga underscore. My letterbox is Lucky Haas. Thanks for having me. Wow, on. you were so prepared for all of that. No, we're <laughs> we're thrilled to have you on. Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and how we came to meet you at the Trilon. Oh my gosh. Well, I started listening to the Trilove podcast when Matt Clark was on. Um, we're in a film club together that he started at the Uh, beginning of the pandemic, uh, we had never met, but we were internet friends. And then we've since met, which is great. Um, And so I've I've been a listener since then. And uh, yeah, just kind of inserted myself. Uh, So happy to have you guys to see Deep End. Mm -hmm. I rented the trial on and uh, it's been great seeing you around. And the rest is history. Uh, Matt Clark, of course, most recently from our episode about Night Moves, I believe, but a storied friend of the podcast. Go back and listen to his episodes, too. Um, But we're, again, thrilled to have you here, Kelly. We're going to be talking about a movie that I will let Aaron introduce uh, as part of the Peter Falk series playing at the trial on right now. Yes, you may have may have been able to figure it out with the the Vim Vendors talk if you uh, that was not edited out. But yes, we're talking about Wings of Desire, uh, Wings of Desire, 1987 film uh, directed by Vim Vendors um, stars Bruno Gans, Gans and Otto Sander uh, as angels, Damiel and Cassiel, uh, respectively. They observe the city of Berlin uh, in the middle of the Cold War uh, doing as as uh, of course, all angels do. They're hearing the thoughts of the inhabitants of Earth. 
but uh, they're unable to interfere or experience life or senses and the passing of time uh, in the same way that humans do. They follow around a number of people in the city who experience joy and sadness uh, for various reasons. And eventually the angel uh, Damiel falls in love with a circus performer named Marion, uh, played here by Solvig de Martin. Uh, Damiel eventually meets actor Peter Falk, uh, played here just extremely charmingly, extremely charmingly uh, by himself, uh, who turns out to be an ex-angel who decided to give up on immortality. Uh, Peter, speaking about the pleasures and pains of of everyday human life, uh, convinces Damiel to do the same uh, in pursuit of love. Uh, The film was uh, critically acclaimed on release. Uh, It's even since then kind of been uh, considered kind of a classic. Uh, I think maybe most notably from an uh, acclaimed standpoint, it, it won Best Director at Cannes. Um, vendors made a sequel a few years later called Far Away So Close, uh, 1993. Um, and Wings of Desire itself was remade in uh, 1998 as City of Angels, uh, which is a movie with Nick Cage and Meg Ryan uh, that supposedly is just fine, maybe. Um, I have not seen it. Uh, most interestingly about that film is the fact that they have uh, uh, Cassiel, uh, is still named Cassiel in that film, but instead of Damiel, uh, they've renamed the main character to be Seth. Uh, so there's an angel named Seth, but uh, there anyway, are two angels uh, named Seth, and one of them's been on our podcast. That's right, your roommate Seth. Uh, he, yeah, hey, good guest. Uh, but yes, that is Wings of Desire. Uh, uh, Kelly, I guess is is our guest. Um, what uh, what are your thoughts of the film? Oh, I'm really happy that I was able to join you for this one because it is one of my favorite movies and has been for the past 25 years. Uh, I saw it as a teen who had kind of a burgeoning interest in foreign film. It was probably one of the first foreign films I ever saw. Um, I'm not quite sure how I got to it other than maybe being a Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds uh, fan, but I'm so glad I did see it. Uh, I'd never seen anything like it, and I probably can still say that. There's not really another movie exactly like Wings of Desire. Um, You know, the concern with the human condition, existential inquiries. I was very fascinated by that. Um, plus the, the scenes in the music venue were basically my ultimate fantasy of what my adult life could be like. <laughs> so uh, I fell in love with it right away and I've really liked it ever since. And uh, until I watched it last night, I hadn't seen it in about 10 years. It's just kind of was on the shelf as like, that's one of my faves. Uh, and it was really, really cool to revisit it. And I can't wait to talk about the new things I discovered and to hear what you guys thought of it. Us too. Uh, I will keep my very th- brief thoughts very brief. Um, I love, of course, all of what this movie is uh, doing and saying and showing about, um, you know, the sort of differences in, in perception of, like Kelly was saying, the human condition. There's, uh, you know, between the alien angels being sort of almost tragic characters, like tragic impish characters above everything, sort of like desiring uh, the now. Uh, I forget the exact passage, but um, there's the, I, I think Damiel talks about wanting to sort of live in now rather than seeing time as like uh, an end to end seeing the, 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 the entirety of human existence as like a, a continuum. Um, and in, instead they, you know, when he, when he comes to earth, he's, he finds joy in that and he finds life and beauty in that. I guess that core through line is what kept me going and what like really, uh, drew my attention and kept my attention. Everything else that's sort of flitting about it, the formal stuff like use of color uh, before anybody has become human, the um, the fact that Peter Falk is like consi- like canonically a, a human angel as Peter Falk, um, uh, like all those things sort of add up to this whole idea I've, I sort of had cooking in my mind of like at the 
core of this movie, there's like a speculation about where one person fits between two states of existence, I guess, and what it is that brings them from one state to another. That's incredibly vague. And I'm hoping that that, you know, wide swath gives us a lot to talk about, but, um, they're almost all of the passages that come through, uh, when Damien and Cassiel are, are speaking, um, they're about, you know, like when the child was a child, as Harry was saying, um, there's one near the end where one of them talks about how, when, uh, and I'm forgetting the exact terms to use, but basically when a spear, when the child threw a spear, um, at the wall, when he caught up to it, it was still there, you know, it was still sort of, um, uh, what was it writhing or something was the word. Um, and that just that overall concept of what things you do in existence, no matter when the points in your existence are, are things that have merit, that have value, that have reverberations through time and space. And, uh, you know, sort of putting us in the eyes, in the mind frame of some of creatures of beings who don't really subscribe to that, uh, you know, linear flow of motion who don't really subscribe to the human condition itself and somebody desiring that human conditions desiring that like quantifiably less, uh, a less abled thing is just like, I don't know. It was, it's tragic. It's uh, sad. There's a lot of, strangely, a lot of humor in here. I shouldn't have been surprised because I have seen Paris, Texas, and there's a good amount of humor in there too, but it's sort of that saccharine, uh, sweet humor that, um, you know, doesn't really make you laugh, just sort of makes you grin and maybe shed a tear. Uh, I've gone on a lot longer than I thought I would, but um, I am throwing uh, my spear uh, in the direction of Cody. And uh, I guess, Cody, you should you should probably move to the left or the right because I'm, I'm aiming directly for where your head is. You might want to move because when I catch up to it, I do not want it to be uh, through you, Cody. Oh, well, sure. <sighs> okay, nice. Dodge that one. Boy, um, Uh see that we don't need to add any sound effects in post this is great um very resourceful thank you jason yeah this is uh uh this rather was my second time seeing wings of desire my first time was about six years ago uh i definitely watched it at a time when i knew it was something i really liked and thought was quite beautiful even if i didn't necessarily have the cinematic vocabulary or context to understand you know why i felt that way not to say that i necessarily do now but i think that's at least something worth considering because this is an experience as a as a viewer and as a spectator that feels rather unique not only are we observing a, a community in a sort of narratively more amorphous way but we're also observing someone else observe this community so not only are we granted access to the thoughts and sort of inner poetry of humanity but we're able to see Damiel, you know a, a freaking angel and all his power and understanding try to put together how what he sees in people stacks up against his own eternal existence as someone who what is it observes gathers testifies verifies and preserves something like that um watching it now it made me think a a lot of sort of like watching a a long form visual poem it uh, i i know i've called it out a lot on this pod but uh made me think of last year at marionbad for a variety of reasons um and all of them good ones um but uh yeah i don't what one other sort of big thing that stood out to me was um about halfway through, I realized I felt an almost soothing sensation while while rewatching this. Yeah. Even though our focus dips a lot into like war and and death and sadness and many of the uh, sort of bummer components that come with being a mortal person, the film itself is not really framed as a like a debate or a you know the grass is greener on the other side fable. You know the the two sides in it. Um, you know, human versus immortal being. We're highlighting the totality of the human experience. The humans we focus on the most consider their mortality and they just kind of continue living. And our um, our protagonist is is very firmly 
on Team Human. It's it's very matter of fact about the human experience without ever being truly over the top bleak about it. And there's just something about that framing that makes, uh, I don't know, watching this movie feel weirdly very nice, but maybe that's just me. Um, so all that is to say, I, I like this movie a lot. There are, I think, a lot of takeaways that manifest themselves in like more feelings and moments in ways that some other films that we've talked about, a lot of them probably uh, don't really do. So it'll be fascinating uh, and exciting to talk about it. But uh, I'll tap out now. I'm actually, I'm trying to make a good drawing of Harry and I, I, I need to concentrate. So maybe it'd be better if he, uh, he jumped in with his takes while I kind of doodled here. Please make me more handsome than I am in real life, Cody. Thank you. Um, That's I, impossible. I, <laughs> um, well, Vim Vendors is maybe one of my favorite filmmakers, I think. Um, this is really, really like deeply my shit, I think. Um, but suffice to say, I really love this movie. Um, it made me think of a lot of things. A lot of It's a coming-of-age story, I think. It's, um, it's a story about humanity itself sort of like broadly as told through the eyes of a single experience or through one person's experience, um, like Jason was talking about. Um, I think that to keep it brief, my sort of experience with this movie and and what made it most effective to me is that it operated for me very much as like a direct argument for why our main character, um, the angel who wants to be human, Daniel, why we should feel the way he does um, and why it's, it's like a gift in magic to be human. And I think it is actually like resoundingly successful um, in that capacity in a way that was actually like very, very moving to me. Um, Like, I think that the reason why we see the perspective of angels and the reason we follow them for most of this movie through their sort of um, their experience of reading thoughts and understanding time the way that they do, right. As this sort of like spectrum that they can see all of um, and have an objective view of versus the sort of like, deep sadness that comes with um, the isolation of being human and perceiving time in a linear fashion and understanding the way that um, the deeply melancholic uh, Marion does that her sort of self-consciousness, it, it deprives her of being even as it makes her aware of being. Um, I think that, that a lot of her monologues are among the most interesting in this movie, because I think that they drive to the heart of a really interesting problem of being human, which is the sort of idea of self-consciousness being self-defeating in the sense that if you're aware of a narrative, then it's not really a narrative anymore. And I really, really latched onto that as a sort of fundamental problem of human, right, is is to hear your thoughts and to have your thoughts is to be sort of divorced from them in certain ways, right? Um, and reconciling with that is a really important aspect of being human that sort of requires the angel's perspective, right? This sort of idea that that all human beings are doing this and all human beings are fundamentally isolated from one another within their sort of like interlocked but but nonetheless separate narratives that play out um and the sort of compassion that this movie uh awakens in the angels for humans and awakens in me for humans right because of that depiction was really like startlingly moving and and it you know i mean it's the sort of movie where um i watched half of it last night and then i um regrettably fell asleep because it was very late and i suck at planning um but like as I was I, the next morning and as I was preparing to watch again, I was like hearing my thoughts differently, right? Like I was, I was narrating my experience in the sort of hushed tones that uh, these characters do. I don't speak German, unfortunately, so my thoughts were still in English. Um, but uh, it was just the sort of thing that like, I love an experience that makes you think about your perspective fundamentally differently and makes you sort of think about what it means to be the person you are 
uh, differently. And especially as the movie ends up, what it means to, to like love someone else or like to have a relationship with somebody else and what that means. Um, and I think that this is the sort of movie that really gets you thinking about that and really gets you um, more than thinking about it, experiencing it. Um, I, you know, I think that this is not a movie that I like that I have a lot of um, inclination to solve per se, so much as I just really, um, I really admire and I really uh, appreciate the experience that it gave me and and how it made me feel. And so I can't wait to, you know, like go see it again at the Trilon, for instance. Um, that's, I've gone on too long as I always do. Um, I'm now tenderly putting my hand on Aaron's shoulder in order to comfort him in a time of uh, grief and sort of existential um, longing and perhaps to um, comfort him a little bit, even though he, he can't see me. Maybe he can feel me. Aaron, can you feel me? Harry, I really needed that right now. I really appreciate that. But uh, if I was going with the bit, I just would have pretended not to, not to answer you. But uh, no, I, I, um, I, I enjoyed this movie quite a bit. I had a, a I think, similarly interrupted experience that, that Harry kind of had. I didn't fall asleep in the middle, but it was just like I was watching this movie and stuff kept coming up that I had to deal with, which is like this movie is not the movie to have that happen. I think like this is I think you want to watch this one in one go and like really be absorbed during it. So I just want to get that out up front because like if I'm a little uh, segmented here like that, that's that's probably why. Um, but I, I went into this film um, with pretty high expectations. I hadn't seen it before. Um, uh, but, you know, this film's popularity, uh, the critical acclaim. Um, also, I think, you know, we did an episode on, on Paris, Texas. That was a, a movie that I, I really loved that I also hadn't seen before. Um, so I went into this movie with, I think, pretty high expectations and I think it, it mostly met them. Um, I think there's, there's kind of a few different things that, that struck me here. Uh, I'll try and keep this brief so we can get to the discussion, but I think there's, there's kind of two main things. I think the first is, um, you know, the, the idea of, the separation, kind of the inherent separation between people that comes about as a result of um, uh, my gut is saying modern uh, like human life. But I, I think this film is maybe taking an even larger kind of scale approach that human life in general is inherently separated. Um, you know, you can never really know, you know, the interiority of another person and getting to know somebody else is kind of taking a leap of faith. And I, I like all of that. And I especially like the way that um, Cold War uh, era Berlin is used to highlight this. I mean, it's a pretty obvious metaphor, um, but I do really like it. I think it's it's one of my favorite things Um pretty much in any sort of narrative work, whether it's a book or a movie, but when a, a, some sort of an environment um, kind of supports the the themes and whatnot that's going on with the interiority of the characters, that's something that I, I really kind of dig. And this movie is like all about that. Um, the second thing is that I, I really like, um, I, I like kind of the first half, first two thirds of this movie, but I kind of really enjoyed the, I don't know, schmaltzy turn that this movie takes in the last act. Um, I guess maybe that's not a perfect word for it. Um, but th this movie does get kind of, uh, I, I mean, I'm trying to think of movies to compare it to. And it is weird because this movie is like such a, uh, like a, an artsy film in a lot of ways, but like, and I think Harry is especially going to hate this, but I, I kept thinking like, it's very Forrest Gump esque in a way. Like it's, it's, do you know what I'm saying? Do you know what I'm saying though? I don't mean that as an insult and I've, I'm not no, trying to just bring up I think, like, I think I do understand what you're saying. That's, that's hilarious. It, it like really swings for like very general, but really meaningful uh, uh, thoughts about life and existence and uh, learning to love somebody else. And I, I kind of dug 
the juxtaposition between kind of the first half of this film and the second half. And of course, there's the, the change from black and white uh, to color that kind of accentuates that. Um, but I, I really dug that. And I saw a lot of people on the internet, not like reviewers, but just like people on Letterboxd and on the internet or whatnot, um, kind of shitting on that. Uh, not a lot, because I think most people really love this movie. But there were some people that were saying, like this movie up until the last act, and then it kind of loses me with, with that stuff. Um, but I really dug it. Uh, and I also really loved it, uh, for the last point I'll make here, uh, is that I have no... Uh, did not grow up watching Columbo. Don't really have a ton of memories of, of Peter Falk, uh, but watching him even a little bit um, and Columbo is something that's like been memed a lot over the past, like just few months on the internet on, on like social media everywhere. Like, I don't know why Columbo is coming back in a big way, but like Peter Falk is someone that even if you did not grow up watching him, it, it feels like you grew up watching him. It, it, his <laughs> performance here is like a, a, like a very cozy, warm blanket. Um, like, honestly, I put him up there with like Robin Williams, like Dick Van Dyke, like Alex Trebek. Like he's just one of those guys that is so comforting to watch act and perform uh, And the fact that he's like playing himself in this movie. Like I just had a smile on my face every time he was, he was on camera. So, um, yes, that is my thoughts on the film. Uh, thumbs up to Peter Falk, I think. Yeah, the extent of my familiarity with Peter Falk was that he was on Columbo, never actually saw Columbo, and in The Princess Bride. That was my exposure to him, and that is the perfect, like, having come off of him literally being a grandpa and seeing him in a movie where he kind of just, feel like, exudes grandpa energy. Very strong, uh, very good transition there. Um, Kelly, what was your uh, Peter Falk level prior to, I guess, maybe the first time you saw Wings of Desire? Oh, probably just an awareness at that time of Columbo, especially the kind of, you know, playing a little bit dumb, you know, and then whipping around just one more thing and then he gets them. Uh, but not really having watched Columbo and, uh, you know, and yeah, also growing up with Princess Bride that was, you know, in rotation at every family holiday. Um, I, I definitely agree with him exuding warm grandpa energy. <laughs> just seems like a friendly guy. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. I spent some time Googling his uh, drawings last night, too. Uh, he did actually make some pretty interesting art. Yeah, I uh, he seems like a, like, I don't know, the, the what the character needed was just like relatability was sort of a guiding hand. Um, but he also just like, I don't know, it makes sense, I guess, that by the end he is an angel because he just has a like sort of he know like you're already in his hands from the moment you see him on screen. Um, and I think that's what makes particularly where Aaron was talking about what, you know, what he called the schmaltzy turn, which I don't disagree with, but I think it owns that near the end of the movie. Um, you know, I think it's just so to see, I don't know, just to, to know something about that character and to know something about the world that we didn't know before the color, the sounds, the rock music and everything is just so like freeing. That is the point. I almost, I almost fell asleep like, like Harry, but I, that, um, you know, that turn is what kept it from being a just almost too comfortable because then I was, it was finally like once again, after a cold calculating 90 minutes of angels discussing what humans are really like and what sort of lives they live and sort of, you know, examining them from, from above, we then have among the people, the real, the, you know, the life, the quote unquote culture, um, you know, which, which again, of course, set against uh, cold water era Berlin is an interesting place to put it, but it, even that, even the, you know, drab, um, even the open fields where the uh, storyteller, you know, just catches a load on an old um, couch, just feel alive by that point, you know? 
Yeah. Well, first of all, I don't think we have to keep up bringing up that I fell asleep, guys. Come on. It, it happens sometimes. <laughs> Has anybody checked on Harry? Does he? Uh, uh... Yeah, thanks. I'm awake right now, uh, I think. Um, I, th- I think I really love Peter Falk. I mean, first of all, I think Peter Falk is maybe the most charming man who ever lived. Um, he's up there, certainly. I can't wait for you guys to watch some Casavetes movies and just have him ruined for you the way that Casavetes ruins everything. Um, that'll be very exciting. Stay tuned. Um, he has a really great arc in this movie too, right? Like, I think that there's something so affecting about this angel who was once not a human. He's acting in order to sort of like learn more about and experience the human condition more, more intimately, right? Like he's always on this quest to be a better actor. He's thinking about it a lot. He thinks about his grandmother, um, which is interesting a lot. And, um, he, he draws these pictures of, of quote unquote extras, right? He refers to them sort of, um, not derisively, but, but sadly as extra people. Right. And, and he's thinking about how it, it turns out as an angel, he used to be able to know their stories, but he doesn't anymore. And that's what makes them sort of like so fascinating and worth drawing to him, which is a really um, great through line to this idea of really like the, the color and all of the sort of magic of living as depicted in this movie is about the not knowing, right? It's, it's about like how, when you have your own perspective, you're fundamentally isolated. And that is so scary and so sad and and so uh, pitiful to the angels, but it's also what gives life all of its, um, ironically, I, I hate to use the word again, but perspective and all of its, its meaning and joy, right. Is this idea that, that you're always discovering something because you don't know anything, you know, that's what that, to me, that, that arc of, um, childhood throughout this movie is about as well, right. Is that they talk about how, when the child was a child throughout, but the last time that, that the angel refers to the childhood sort of metaphor, um, he's talking about how they're still that way, right. The child is in fact still a child. And that sort of like, unending process of discovery and discovery of self in another and discovery of, um, of the other, uh, in the way that it's never finished and never really even starts because it, how could it start, um, is in fact, like that is what, what makes life worth living. Right. And so like, I think that this movie has a really, really, um, like complete understanding of that and, uh, argues it very well in, in all of its through lines, right? Like even in, um, even in Peter Falk's character arc. And I, I thought that was really amazing. Um, so I, I think that like, it, it makes sense that Peter Falk is in this that way. Right. Um, when I was younger, I think what really intrigued me was the final third. And um, my memory of the movie was really rooted in that, you know, the rock music, the love story, the transformation, um, you know, that's, that's what stuck with me. Um, but rewatching it, I was like, man, I just can't believe that I didn't really remember, or maybe didn't even pick up very, you know, heavily on uh, kind of the, the Cold War Berlin themes of, uh, you know, yearning for peace, yearning for possibly reunification, um, the pain of the people who live in Berlin, um, you know, some of whom lived through the war and saw terrible things and went through terrible things. Uh, you know, the reminders of the rubble, you know, there's the um, building shown in the beginning, the, um, the church spire that's still um, broken. Uh, you know, I, I think of this as a movie that people bring up, you know, the city's a character. I think it's one that like people cite frequently 
for that. Um, but, you know, it, it didn't really sink in when I was younger, I guess. I was definitely more like into the like, oh, you know, Marion's so cool. She's got great outfits and like, what a great love story. Uh, and, you know, this viewing definitely, you know, made me think of the more painful things. But uh, obviously the, uh, the, the humans that get to talk to the angels and the angels themselves kind of end up thinking that, uh, you know, the, the pain of being human, the anxiety and the grief that you endure um, sometimes are worth it for, for the kind of love and interesting sensory things you go through and um, just kind of knowing that uh, life is very precious when it's finite. Yeah, I, I think there's a, an aspect of this film, specifically in regard to, to Berlin, that is, is very interesting um, in that the, the film was critically acclaimed when it came out, uh, of course. Um, but there is, kind of looking back in retrospect, uh, like a very interesting uh, part of this film. This film came out in 1987. Uh, the Berlin Wall would fall two years later. And I think that the it honestly just like the the tone of this film as this film changes uh you know from from taking a look at these angels that see this world in black and white uh that are are kind of observers but are unable to really feel the emotions and the experiences that people do uh you know the positives and the negatives and then as that changes at the end and this this one angel chooses to kind of um you know kind of take that leap of faith and become a human um that i think works like so much better when you are able to view this film in like historical context where like the, the wall would fall two years later uh, at the time. Of course, I, I think there was probably some sentiment that things were approaching uh, that right. And the cold war was maybe coming to an end, although I'm sure there was still a lot of like, uh, you know, scary stuff going on at that time. Um, but I think that this film, like the, the kind of the, sh what I described as like the schmaltzy attitude towards like life and love and, you know, human experience. I think that the reason that it works is because like being able to look back at it and say like that totally works for the end of this period of history. Um, you know, like they, they really did just nail it. Right. Like they made a movie about all of these, these very strong emotions. And then knowing that, you know, two years later, the Berlin wall would fall, people would be reunified. Um, I think that that is like weirdly powerful in a way um, that kind of adds to the, the, the context of this city as this environment uh, in this film. I'm really glad both of you brought that up because that's something that um, I, I mean, I, I of course understood that it was, it was very um, heavy and sort of symbolic that this took place in divided Berlin. Right. But um, I think that that really drilling into that is, is important. Right. Because like I, I was going to bring it up in the context of like, this felt like a movie about the end of things. Right. Like it, it felt like, I mean, Aaron, like you had said, like it, this totally feels like a movie that is anticipating the fall of the wall of Berlin. Right. Like it feels like the moment everybody's holding their breath right before it. And it's sort of like, it's about like collecting yourself right in that moment. Like, I think that, that there's that poet Homer that, that they follow around. Um, and he's talking about how the world will have to go without its storyteller when he dies. Right. And that's sort of what it feels like. It feels, I hate to use the term, the end of history. Right. But it, it feels like this is a movie that is perched on sort of like the edge of a history looking back and trying to figure out what it all meant, right? And and what it was all for. Um, and I think that, that that's really interesting, not only because of the way that it sets up for the, the schmaltziness, like you had said, Aaron, um, it makes it feel earned, but it, it's also sort of like, 
I was wondering a lot about something that you had said, Kelly, about why this movie doesn't focus more on the tragedy and the cynicism of the human experience, right? Because it does feel like that's sort of missing. And I hate to to bring in outside material, right? But like in City of Angels, they sort of make the subtext text very clearly. That's the the, re, the loose remake of this movie. Um, and the angel really does experience the whole spectrum. Um, but I think that that there's something about the fact that this is set in Berlin and that that sort of like city as character, like you had said, Kelly, it's sort of like it it makes that all work right in the sense that like we can feel and see the isolation and the sort of like um, anxieties and and fears and sort of frustrations of this disunification and this sort of like um, being at the sort of like end point of, of a history, um, and not quite knowing where, where to go next. And that, that sort of feeling of, um, existential unmoredness without having to focus on it too much. Right. And so I think that's, that's maybe why it works for me so well, even though outside of like the, the suicide scene and outside of some of the other early scenes, there's, there's actually like very little like focus on the sort of like the pain or the evil of humanity, right? Like these are, these are angels who are talking about whether or not evil really exists instead. Um, and I think, I think that still worked. Um, I don't, I don't know how you all felt about that, but like, that was something I I had been thinking about. And I think that the fact that it's set in cold war Berlin or like nearly post-war cold war Berlin really makes some of those aspects, um, work a lot better than they might've otherwise. Yeah, um, really well put here. I guess piggybacking off of that, um, the sorts of things that really stood out to me were like, like this movie felt like it was examining not just like the the sort of end of things, like you said, Harry, but like also sort of considering like we have to exist after these things are over. Um, so maybe that's like where the, kind of the, the Berlin Wall piece fits in. Um, I mean, with Marion as well, like she finds out pretty early on in her arc, like that almost the extent of her her arc where Daniel's kind of observing her is the the circus has to, you know, they can't pay the bills. They have to sh- shut down for the season. And a lot of her sort of inner monologue is about you know, this, this thing that I love doing is over. Maybe I will never, you know, move past this to attain, you know, maybe I will never be a trapeze artist. Maybe like I'll never get to that to that thing. This thing is going to be over for maybe just the season, maybe the year, maybe however long, but like I have to like confront this and continue to exist after this uh, in some way. And like you, you sort of get with that with, um, with Homer as well, the time we spend with him and, and Cassiel sort of observing him as he sort of, you know, Homer realizes he's nearing the end and he's thinking about how the things he carries with him can and will live on um, after he's gone. Um, so I, I guess I don't, and maybe that's the sort of charm or that contributes to the, the charm that Damiel sees in people in being a mortal person. Um, and maybe that's, uh, going back to the, uh, I think somebody brought up the, and that's probably why Cassiel is so, um, distraught, um, when that, that, uh, man jumped off the roof, like really, really great scene and really great detail that he was so like that he screamed in, in almost like, like visible agony because like that is, the end of the end. It's not like we're, we're moving past, you know, we're, we're getting some peace of mind and then like pushing on as most of these angels are, we see them doing this. You put, put their hand on someone's shoulders. They get sort of a, 
a moment of, of clarity, maybe um, the clouds sort of dissipate and then they're able to, to push on. Um, so I, I don't know. I, I don't know if that's a, a big takeaway from all this or not, but that, that was sort of a, uh, I don't just like a through line of this movie and a through line of, of being a person that really um, like landed well with me, I guess this time. That's a great point. I, I think that's helping me contextualize like some of my ideas around using angels as like the narrative through line of this, like, because the angels themselves use, you know, these supposedly more, if not all knowing beings using humans as conduits to understand the world's in ways, the world in ways that they can't like, um, Damiel wants to, uh, see the now because they just can't see, you know, the past without seeing also the future. They can't look at the past and, uh, you know, in the face of that, in the face of what has come before, in the face of what is current, uh, feel a desire to you know make and create and feel a better world um they don't have that that's like an element of the human experience that they that they you know for lack of a better term desire um kelly i want to make a pivot but i'll let you go through with your point real quick mine might be a bit of a pivot too (laughs) oh please absolutely uh well i really like the music and bands in this and the thinking about the bands in it kind of made me think about how even the cast represents uh, you know, a movie that is, it's a German or, you know, maybe Franco-German production, um, mainly German cast, um, but, you know, of the of the stars, you know, Bruno Gans was Swiss, I believe. Um, Solveig was a French actress, Peter Falk being the United States. Um, both the bands that are in it, um, Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds and Crime in the City Solution, were bands that formed in Australia, but sort of became citizens of the world. Um, they both had times based out of Berlin. Um, they had uh, members that came from all over United States, England, Germany. Um, and it, it kind of got me thinking a little bit about how even though this is such a like, Berlin film, um, in a, a German movie that um, there's a portrayal of uh a city of expatriates. Um, there's lots of people, you know, who've come from all over gathering around a certain type of like cultural experience, like the music. Um, and I was just kind of thinking about how the, uh, the bands and cast did sort of inform the feel of like, this is a little bit of a melting pot of a city at that time. Wow. That's such a great point. I, compl- I didn't know that uh, Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds started in Australia, but that makes so much sense, right? And like, not only, I think that setting a movie in Berlin, especially East and West Berlin like this, it kind of does a, an interesting thing, right? Where it localizes it to a very specific place, but it also makes it very much a movie about the world, right? Because I think that that maybe more than anywhere else at that time, Berlin was kind of the world stage, right? Like, I mean, these two superpowers had literally come together there and their two respective halves were sort of representing the ideologies that defined the rest of the sort of industrialized world and world powers at that time. And so like, it totally makes sense that like this movie that is so much about dislocation, right? It's so much about like a melting pot and people coming together and different stories intersecting and and what that all means would take place somewhere like this and would feature so many different people, right? Like, I mean, Peter Falk is, is an outsider as in a sort of Irma Vep sense in this movie. Um, there are, the bands are outsiders. The angels are obviously literally aliens looking um, down from, from above and thinking about what it means to look down on something from above that way. And, 
I think that that all really lends itself to this this idea of of experiential uh, experience, for lack of a better word, like being so prime and and so important, right? Like the the thing that angels don't know is that like to feel something you have to experience it, right? And to to experience something you have to feel it. Um, Jason, what was your pivot point going to be? I'm I'm really interested in that. I wanted to zero in on Cassiel if we could, uh, because his 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 character isn't quite as developed. Maybe we get you know, close to as much screen time of him as Damiel. Uh, but we just don't see how his character ends. We, I th- if I remember correctly, it's we're left on sort of a cliffhanger about whether or not he makes the decision and sort of becomes compañero to uh, Peter Falk, right? Um, it's left intentionally blank. So while that's, you know, a little, a littler idea, I wanted to see if we couldn't uh, drill down into that. You might want to watch the sequel and you'll find out a lot more about Casillo. Oh, good Lord. What, well, uh, or maybe you don't watch the sequel. It's not very good. Well, I, yeah. I shouldn't say it's not good. It's just really different in a way I did not like at the time I saw it. Hmm. Yeah, I can't imagine like a satisfying way that they could show me what happens there. I really do like the tantalizing, like you know, the, the unknowing of it all. I guess. Um, but I do just like the the way that he's used in the movie up to that point. I think is interesting to me because he is like, if Damiel is the um, counterpoint to you know, humanity's folly where he wants some of that. He wants to be part of that. Uh, then, um, Cassiel is sort of like a counterpart to that counterpart in ways. He's a little bit of an extension of an extension. He's been a little bit of, you know, the Waluigi to Mario, you know, like the oh counter God. to the counter. And I, I just wasn't exactly sure how to, um, you know, it left me scratching my head in a, in a pleasant way, but in like, I wasn't sure if there was, if that was the point, I wasn't sure if there's, um, you know, more to be said about his character or like what it, what part he played uh, off of the rest of the cast. Yeah. Um, first of all, I wanted to say that like how disappointing it was for me to like, to see that to be continued and think like, Oh, I get it. Right. It's like, that's a, that's so beautiful and symbolic, right? He's saying that like the story will continue the story of humanity. Now we will write it ourselves, right? Like we have reached this end point of history and the next step is ours to determine as, as people, as people who are finally growing. And then it was like, no, they're referring to the fact that there's a literal sequel. (laughs) I was like, "Ah." I feel feel the same way. Yeah. Incredibly disappointing. Um, but I, I, I really like Cassiel as well, Jason. And I like, to me, he, he was a really fascinating character because I, I, he was almost like, um, he was, he was like, a the other part of a love triangle, right. Between, um, uh, Damiel, Marion and, and Cassiel. Cassiel is like, he, he like represents the, the maybe more logical, maybe more sensible side of like, why would you want to be human? Right. I, to me, that's what he represented anyway, is, is the fact that like he, he understands and sees everything that um, that Damiel does, but maybe more sensibly comes to the conclusion that it sounds awful, <laughs> right? Or, or that it's not something that, that he can understand why somebody would want to do. And I, I think that he sort of is a foil for Damiel in that way, in that he's sort of like the character who who doesn't grow up, so to speak, and doesn't want to mm-hmm. partake of that. Um, and I, I think that the movie, it has a lot of sympathy for that, right? And I, I really like, I mean, to go back to the the suicide scene that's so affecting again, right? It's that like, it's not that, it's not that, uh, that Cassiel doesn't understand what it means to be human. And that's why he, he remains an angel and doesn't take Peter Falk's hand. It's that he does, Right. It, yeah. It's that like he can't imagine the sort of pain that would that would make somebody want to give up their life or he can. And that is something that's so frightening to him to consider that he doesn't know why anybody would want to pursue that experience. 
and maybe if you're uh, if you love to ship the way that I do, it's because he's also in love with Damiel. But that we don't have to go into that. No, I. I, I love that read. I love that read that there's like a relationship there that is broken, that he is them feeling pain afterward. Um, I just like that. It does not punish him. And, you know, in a, I use the phrase a lot in a lesser film or in a different film on this podcast, but in a different film, I think he would be sort of like, I think we would yes. see him in more anguish. I think we would see like more of his story continued. And maybe again, Kelly, maybe this is like, you're seeing me sort of chasing a, a carrot at the end of a stick and like, but the carrot is poison and full of razor blades or something. I'm not going to watch the sequel to this movie, but I cannot imagine that it solidly wraps up anything that would like add to that story for me. And up until he becomes a human, that story is like, I won't say 50, 50. It's of course we are seeing most of it through uh, Damiel's point of view, but I think that Cassiel as, as you know, foil to that is just as important. And then he just sort of fades by the end to, you know, what is the foil? What is one hand clapping? You know, what is the foil without something to foil, you know? Yeah. I, here's a weird comparison. And this is the only reason I raised my hand. I think that he's kind of like the Dignan of this movie from bottle rocket. Okay. Okay. Back that up. He's like, he's like the character who gets left behind, right? Like I think that, that Daniel is sort of like the character uh, in this movie who goes on a um, coming of age quest and ends up falling in love. And through that love, he sort of like comes of age and understands what no angel knows. But meanwhile, we have um, Cassiel who's sort of like left behind, right? And like represents the life that, that um, if you could call it a life that Damiel used to have. And I think that there's something really beautiful and really poignant and sort of sad about that, right? About like the idea that as you make the decision to move forward with this new feeling, um, and these new ideas that you have, you are leaving something behind, right? And so, like, there is sort of like always that that double edgedness to the human experience. Um, no pun intended. I think that one of the most moving parts of the movie is um, during the music performance where uh, Damiel and Marianne are about to have their conversation, and Cassiel just turns his face to the wall. It seems just so yeah. painful. <laughs> You know, that's probably going to end up being the gif I use for this episode on Twitter is just because there's like flashing lights and like shadows behind him. It's just such a delightfully constructed shot. Um, it's when your boy gets his first crush and you're not quite there yet. You're just like a little bit younger <laughs> than him. Maybe you hate to see it. You know, it's just like there's something there between you now that'll never be the same. It's also the experience of being a younger sibling. And uh, when your brothers and sisters start to uh, get friends and you don't. Uh, I want to open it up to final thoughts uh, or any other final talking points before we sort of empty the tank here. Um, uh, let's see, Cody, Aaron, Kelly, anything we didn't touch on yet that we should uh, loop back around to? I, I've never uh, gone. I don't think I've ever been to the circus, but is the knife throwing really that shitty in real life? Because like the, the guy was standing like a foot away. I mean, yeah, great. I mean, like Western films have always made me think that people are throwing them from like across the room, you know what I mean? And they're like an inch away. But like this guy's he's just a foot away. Just it, he's, I, the knives, they're not I even think, close. I think, no the, uh, I think the I think the value in that scene, I think, is is showing us that like, hey, he's throwing knives in a woman's direction and not hitting her. That is the accomplishment. Not that he's landing them in cool spots. Not that he's like outlining her body perfectly like a chalk drawing. Just that he's throwing them and not hitting her, I think, is the accomplishment of the knife throwing. Maybe if they were better at knife throwing, the circus wouldn't have had to close. 
Something I well, to- I didn't want to say that. I didn't want to say it, but you know, well, obviously, Marion is doing a great job up there. You know what I mean? But the knife thrower, well, you know, I mean, it is it. It the audience is, of course, mostly children. So, like, I guess I can't <laughs> and two angels playing too much. Yeah, and, and two, two angels. angels. Well, they're they're children too. Um, I want to uh, give a quick shout out to Nick Cave saying that he's not going to tell you about a girl, and then immediately singing so from her funny. to eternity. <laughs> oh my God! What a good scene. Uh, I have uh, a, a little trivia moment related to some Nick Cave in this movie. Oh, uh, Kelly's gotta... noties. <laughs> oh, no. I have to keep up my uh, streak of mentioning uh, the bands every single time I talk about this movie. Here you um, go. But I had never noticed when uh, uh, Marion goes to her little caravan, she puts on a Nick Cave record, and mm-hmm. she is listening to a song called The Carney which is about uh, a carny who disappears from his carnival as it's uh, getting ready to pack up and move on. Uh, and that's also the song that is playing when we cut to Nick Cave's performance. I, for some reason, I never noticed that one before. And man, what just like an engrossing performer he was, is. I've never yeah. seen Nick Cave in the Bad Kid in the Bad Seas um, Live. But amazing live. So yeah. amazing. It was nuts. Uh, I was told once by my plumber that like, I look like a guy who should have been at the concert last night when Nick Cave and the Bad Scenes came through last year, year before. (laughs) I didn't know how to feel about that, but I felt okay. Yeah, I I think there are worse uh, titles one can be awarded. Um, One such title that I thought of, I, I actually had an interesting sort of mental roller coaster ride while watching this because I was like, man... For the Golden Berries this year, like, are we going to need to come up with a category like Simp of the Year and then just give it to Damiel? But then I forgot we also did Wong Kar Wai movies. So, yeah, like, it would, that would actually be a stacked category. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and also, um, Kiki's Delivery Service. So, uh, Tombo oh, would be a, a hard contender in that arena. Oh, that would be its own episode. Okay. Yeah. We can take that off, Mike, but. That's, I, 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 I think we do have to do thought. Simp of the Year for the, the award show at the end of this year. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Uh, trending gear of the simp. Hashtag I just wanted to, to go back to something that Cody said earlier about um, Marion herself that I thought was a really brilliant point, like tying Marion's character arc about the end of her sort of like life as a trapeze artist and that sort of existential pillar crumbling under her and in her wondering like, who am I going to be now? What am I going to be? Um, I think that that's a really good arc to read the story through. Um, So I guess I kind of wanted to hear what you guys all thought about her, because I think she ends up in a really interesting place, right? Especially as the sort of like um, parallel journey to, um, to uh, Damiel who becomes her lover at the end of the movie. I've always loved, uh, her arc and um, the monologue she has at the end, I sort of interpret as, you know, this isn't just a like, you know, fluffy romance story where it's like, Oh, you fell in love with me. Guess what? I love you back too. Uh, You know, she's been searching for something. She's been alone. Uh, You know, she's not just going to jump at the first thing necessarily, you know, she needs to kind of stand up for herself a little bit and say like, you know, hey, I've con- I've really considered this. I've weighed my options, and you know, I need your buy-in too. Uh, and I've always thought that was extremely cool of her. Uh, we we talked. I can't remember what episode it was, but we talked on a, a different episode about the idea of, of films that kind of um, prioritize uh, some sort of like greater message or point above any sort of like realism or naturalism in regard to. 
you know, a dialogue and characters and whatnot. And I, I think Marion is like a perfect example of that. And yep. like literally <laughs> nothing, not just her. I mean, if it was just the, you know, kind of interior thoughts that, that people are speaking, which quick note, this, this movie does do like the greatest sin of all films, which is like extensive, like uh, first person narration, uh, but it gets away with it. Cause it's like that, that, it's like what the whole movie is doing. Right. Uh, which I thought was kind of cool. Um, but like even her, her, like the thoughts in her head is, you know, that's one thing. Um, but even like every line of dialogue, specifically the scene at the end, uh, where she's talking to Damiel, uh, is, um, I mean, it's, 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 uh, it's pretty much her just kind of saying the point of the thing, right? Yeah. Uh, it's, it's not a conversation that you would ever have with a person. Um, and in that way, she's not really a character or she, her, her character exists kind of as a vessel, uh, in the same way that, that, that kind of, I think every character in this, this film does, um, in order to kind of communicate these kind of, uh, larger, uh, themes and, and, and thoughts. Um, and, it, it, it works here, I think. Um, I, I guess I don't know why it does, um, because it's it's not, uh, I think, pointing out how weird that is. But it is, you know, again, that dialogue is like, it's so unnatural, um, but it really works in the moment for some reason. It is someone um, expressing uh, truly how they feel uh, in a way that no one truly could, right? Uh, you know, people can express how they feel in an emotional way that, that maybe um, uh, is kind of spur of the moment. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But the things she is saying feel so carefully considered and thought out. Um, and it's, it's unnatural, but it like it really works. Um, and I, I don't know, I really dug that scene uh, quite a bit. I really like her too. And I don't disagree with you, Aaron. I just like, I think she's such a fascinating character for how she sort of almost meets the angel in the middle, right? Where like her arc in this, in this story is with the angel's help to sort of like transcend her understanding of herself, right? Like she, she's a character who is at first sort of like at odds with her own life and with everyone because she feels dislocated from everything, right? She says she has no home. She has no country. She has no understanding of herself. And this only thing that, that she had ever sort of associated with her identity and sort of made her identity being a trapeze artist is, is going away now. And she has to reconcile with what that means. And especially when you set that against the fall of the Berlin wall and the sort of end of that period of history, it becomes very weighted. Like Cody was saying, and then she sort of like the, the conclusion that she comes to with the help of the angels literally on her shoulders is that she gets to choose, right? Like that, that she gets to tell the next chapter of her story. And that is what it means to be um, sort of an adult, right? Is that like now she has to be serious, like she said to the angel, right? And, and that there's something really like... Kelly, to your point, it's almost subversive in the sense that it's like you get to the end of a love story and in another movie, like you had said, Jason, like this would be where she just falls into his arms and they're just together. But in, instead, she like really turns it around and she's like, actually, like, this is me choosing this. This is not just you choosing this. This is something that we're both going to have to be actively involved in. And then which, in the, yeah. Yeah. If I can just comment on that, I, I don't yeah. want you to lose your train of thought, but it's marrying so well with what you said before about these characters sort of like not realizing that they are narrating themselves, that they are sort of like not yet disconnected from their thoughts. I'm thinking about, again, that Nick Cave moment where he says, I'm not going to tell you about a girl. And then he sings the first line of a song about a girl. Uh, and that to me is like marrying really well with your, with your point about how she, you know, the whole movie, most of the movie, at least most of Damiel's story up to that point has been 
observing this woman and like sort of intimating what she wants and seeing that she see seems adrift that she's not sure what her future is going to be like and then once you actually see her in real life her conscious thoughts spoken aloud it's not a completely different story she's the same person but she has had that realization that you were talking about right that agency yeah exactly and it's like it's it's so cool because like here we we've seen this entire movie of of characters who don't realize that they have their own agency right because they're stuck in their own thoughts and they're just thinking and sort of letting life happen to them um, whereas the angels can see that they have this agency they just can't see it for themselves and then finally he approaches her ready to sort of like shed that in order to have this life. And she has attained that agency, right? It's like, it's a, it's a movie about learning that you are your own storyteller, right? That you are your thoughts. I mean, not to shout out Jason's letterbox, Jason's got on letterbox, but like your quote that you quoted this movie was, how should I live? Maybe that's not the question. How should I think? Right. And that's like extremely what like the movie appears to be saying at the end, right? Is that like your, um, your thoughts are your destiny, so to speak, right? Like you have the, you have the power to like define that. Like you are the person that you seek to be, that you think you are. Um, there's something very affirming about that, especially the way that it, it frames it as something that is universally belonging to all people, right? If only we could see it. You are the thing that takes you to the next state of being. You are the wings of your own desire, if I may. Uh all right. Well, I know I said it before, but are there any spare thoughts? We're coming out about an hour and I would like to be respectful of everybody's time. Any other final thoughts before we skip into our final segment? Cool. Then I will need Harry's help introing the final segment of our show. And oh, wait, Harry, Harry and Kelly. Yes. Uh, would you be able to help us, Kelly? It's basically the sister sister theme, but we say Cody's <laughs> ladies instead. You don't, have to, you don't have to give that. I think I, okay. I'll try. Okay. Right, thank you. On Harry's count. Uh, this part that we like to call Cody's Nodies. I came in too Wait, early, that's... just like I always do at karaoke. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, you guys are telling me that's the sister sister theme? Oh my god. Okay. Well, I need to reevaluate some things, but thank you. This being the uh, last episode of Cody's Nodies, <laughs> now that he knows. <sighs> shutting it down shutting down for the season or longer who knows uh no just kidding uh as long as i'm here this this segment will always be here but thank you um as always folks for that uh that angelic introduction in uh in honor of one of the current trilon themes going on this month today we'll be taking a look at the life and career of peter falk 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 peter fuck in a segment i like to call the falk in our stars that's oh my god whoa Hmm. <sighs> okay. Get it? Because he was an angel. He was an angel at one point in the movie that we just talked about. It makes sense. Anyways, what I'll do, what I'll do, let's get us, let's get ourselves back on track. What I'll do is present each Falk-related tidbit. There we go, one at a time. There's an L in that last name. After each statement, I will ask y'all in alphabetical by first name order to respond. You'll get a point for every correct answer or closest to the correct answer, and the person with the most points at the end wins. As always, uh, shout out to Trivia Mafia. Trivia Mafia rules do apply here, so use your noodles, not your Googles. With that, let's go ahead and jump in. This This first question is... Uh, very intentionally, very straightforward, and is meant to sort of delicately ease us into trivia mode. Um, some of you folks might know this, some of you might not, but my question for you all is, how tall was Peter Falk? Aaron? Uh, sorry, I did hit the... Uh, you know, six 
six one. Six one says Aaron Harry. I think he was six three, right? I, he's a pretty tall dude. All right, six three says Harry Jason. I'm gonna say like five nine. I have no concept of space or time. Uh, relatable and Kelly. I think Peter Falk's a short guy, so I'm gonna say my own height five four. Kelly says five four. Uh, going off a few sources on the internet, Peter Falk was reportedly. Five foot six inches. Kelly takes the point. Uh, Man, a, a six foot three Peter Falk would be a sight. A, 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 a giant one. presence, I, I should say. Perhaps not a giant man, but a giant screen presence. And so I was buffaloed by that, by my, uh, in, you know. Yeah, you know, um, buffaloed. Uh, so yes, Kelly Kelly takes a commanding lead with one point, getting into number two here. We've got five questions as we as we typically do for the second question. Going by IMDb's metrics, Peter Falk was nominated for forty seven different awards over the course of his career. My question to you all: How many of those nominations were for his work in a film directed by his longtime friend and collaborator John Cassavetes? Aaron. Sorry, what was the overall number again? Uh, 40, 47 awards, and then, yeah, how many of those? Uh, we can do, like, crude numbers. How many of those uh, nominations were for John Cassavetti's movies? Crude numbers? You mean 69? Oh, boy. That's higher um, than the max. 420. Uh, 18. Aaron says 18. How many does Harry say? I want to say that Cassavetti's movies were not, like, super critically acclaimed in their time, although they are now. So I'm going to go with... Um, uh, I want to say like nine. I'm probably super wrong again. Harry says nine. Jason, uh, which, what, what do you think? Put Jason down for seven. I am putting Jason down for seven. It is etched in concrete and Kelly. What's your guess? Can you remind me, is this for all of his work or just movies? We'll, we'll say just, just movies. Okay. I'm going to guess 25. All right. Perfect. Um, yeah, didn't want to give too much too much of it away. Uh, the the end game is that it, it doesn't really matter because the correct answer is zero nominations. Uh, Harry wow. was actually uh, Harry's train of thought was um, as far it, as I can tell because of uh, the rules. From what I gathered from his list of accolades, um, you know, Falk, he, he was nominated a lot for his work as uh, Columbo. Um, he was nominated for <laughs> fucking 10 Emmys for playing Columbo on TV. Um, but yeah, a lot of Lifetime Achievement Awards. And then, yeah, from what I can presume, a lot of other slices of his career sort of got reevaluated later on. Um, like, yeah, his work was, like, a, like a wild sort of independent filmmaker, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. So yeah, Jason being closest and uh, and metagaming, which for some reason is either allowed or disallowed depending on the mood of our contestants, um, gets the point there. So so Jason and Kelly both uh, with a point on the board. We got three more questions here. Uh, next up for number three, in many IMDb profiles, they've got a, a section dedicated to trademarks that uh, that's some of y'all listening might be familiar with. Uh, trademarks of that particular artist. What I'm going to do here is list four Peter Falk trademarks per IMDb. Three will be real one will be fake um and your job will be to pick out the fake trademark per imdb's list so first short and stocky physique second (laughs) second half closed eye which was actually removed in childhood third new york accent and fourth often smoking cigarettes or cigars so which one of those is the fake imdb trademark aaron I mean, I want to say the I one, but that that seems like it's 
it's got to be uh what was the third one you mentioned uh the third one new york, new york accent, accent. I, I guess i'll pick that one okay harry i was also gonna go with new york accent okay perfect jason i'm gonna go with smoking uh jason is gonna go with smoking for the purposes of the game uh and kelly i'm gonna guess his height and physique gotcha um perfect so oh, the uh god damn it the the fake trademark is d uh, often smoking cigarettes or cigars which is to say that it's not necessarily an incorrect trademark of Falk's characters uh they do smoke a lot and he did a lot as a person but imdb does not have it listed as one and yes um with with regards to the eye that is a glass eye which was removed um because of cancer i think when he was like three years old so that's that's what that is um to the best of my recollection through crude uh crude googling um, no, let's look it up yeah perfect I thought you were so give um a trick where you were like it was his left eye but it was actually his right eye i was i was anticipating that i was waiting for it because i can never remember which eye it is oh yeah that's mm, well all we can say is uh i i and move on uh and look at look at jason he's uh he's in the lead with two kelly's uh got one point aaron and harry you have yet to get on the board we do have two more questions here it is still very much anybody's game for our fourth and second to last question similar to what we've done in previous games i'm going to read off three quotes allegedly uttered by peter falk two of these utterances will be for real again allegedly and one will be fake your task is to pick out the fake one so i'll read off the three quotes and leave it to each of you to pick out the imposter afterward so starting with the first quote you can't use a hat as a prop when it's raining but you can use a cigar under almost any circumstances so that's the first one second quote I'm a Virgo Jew, and that means I have an obsessive thoroughness. I've been accused of perfectionism. So that was the second one. And the third and final quote, I've been chain-smoking cigarettes for 55 years. My mother is 91 years old and still lights up. I'm trusting to luck that I'm blessed with her constitution. So which one of those is the allegedly fake quote, Aaron? Uh, Don't know when he was born. I'm going to go with the Virgo Jew quote, I think. Uh, okay. I'm going to go with that one. All right, Harry. Um, I was going to go with that one too, but I guess just for the the love of the game, I'm going to go with A instead. Maybe it was a cigarette instead of a cigar, and you're trying to fake us out. Gotcha, uh, Jason. I am also going with smoking. Going with smoking again for the purposes of the the game. So wait, the hold on, so not the one Harry just said, but the chain smoking cigarettes one. Yes. Okay, I just realized how many of these have to deal with smoking. Okay, good. Good stuff. And <laughs> Kelly, what's your pick? I'm going to guess the second one. All right, perfect. So the uh, the imposter quote is A. Uh, so the one Harry picked. The actual alleged quote is as follows. <clears throat> you can't use an umbrella as a prop when the sun is out, but you can use a cigar under almost any circumstances. I'm on you, Narvison. Uh, you can't win. You can't fake me out anymore. I know you too well. I, yeah, right. Okay, that's your first point of the game there, Sailor. Let's uh let's <laughs> let's let's ease up. Yeah, I don't know. I I those those quotes, I each of them had a had an opportunity. I almost picked the the Virgo Jew one and picked a different zodiac sign, but then I part of me thought that was too obvious. Um but anyways, giving away giving away too many of my tells here. Uh and which is not a good thing to do getting into the final question, the fifth and final question of the game. Uh what I what I'm going to do is ask each of y'all to rank a few Peter Falk films in order of most to least popular. And to measure film popularity, we're going to go by number of letterboxed entries. 
uh, and you will get a point for each correctly slotted film. And there will be four films total in the mix. So if you get the order perfectly correct, uh, correct rather, you'll get four points. If two of the films are slotted into the right places, you'll get two points, etc. You get the idea. With that, with that, with that, I will now read the list of four films y'all are trying to rank from most to least popular. Um, so I'll read the films and then I'll, I'll kind of vamp a little bit so y'all can, can have some time. Uh, so the f- first, Mikey and Nikki from 1976. Uh, which is also playing in the Trilons Peter Falk series. Second, Wings of Desire from 1987. Uh, if you want to hear more about that movie, just like rewind the audio file you're listening to. Third, The Princess Bride, also from 1987. And finally, fourth film, Shark Tale from 2004. Uh, I think Peter Falk voiced a shark or something. <laughs> um, uh, I looked up a picture of it online. He is, he is indeed a, a shark character. So those are the four films. Again, Mikey and Nikki, Wings of Desire, The Princess Bride, Shark Tale. Uh, and we, what we want is a list of those movies from most to least popular going by number of letterboxed entries. And um, I'll, I'll talk a little bit more um, to give us all a little bit of time. I've seen all the movies on on this list. Um, they're all they're all bangers. Um, not Shark Tale. That movie kind of sucks. Can you rank best um, to worst? Uh, I think we'll all have roughly the the same list. Uh, actually, well, no, I I, I, I shouldn't say that. We, well, we know what, we know what the bottom one's going to be. Aaron, if you do anything cheeky, I just didn't grow up with Princess situation. Bride. I just didn't grow up with Princess all right, Bride. All right, all right. It's just I'm sorry. If you, I mean, if you, if you say canonically on this episode that Shark Tale is a better movie than The Princess Bride, all of our, all of our devoted fans. I think I've only seen like half of Shark Tale, uh, and I didn't enjoy the half that I saw, I will say. There was like the Robert De Niro shark that was kind of good, I guess. Uh, Did you see the the first or second half? I I don't remember. I mean, I I don't remember seeing the climax of the film, so. uh, You've got to see the other half, man. The other half is where it's at. That's where it really sells you. It switches up from black oh. and white to color. Yeah, just at the end. <laughs> oh boy! All right. Um, how are we doing, Aaron? Do you do you got I'm your order? Go. Your order ready? Okay, perfect. Um, so yeah. lay it on me. Uh, whenever whenever you're ready. So from most uh, to least popular. Yeah. So I might be showing my ass with this list, but I, most popular, I'm going to put Princess Bride. Uh, okay. Second, I am I am probably wrong here, but second, I'm going to put Wings of Desire. Okay. Uh, third, I'm going to put Shark Tale. Might have messed mm-hmm. up there. Uh, then fourth, I'm going to put Mikey and Nikki. Gotcha. Perfect. Yeah. All right. Um, Harry, uh, you're up next. What's your order? Yeah. See, this is always an interesting question because I'm sort of stuck in my letterbox bubble. But like everybody in my letterbox fucking loves Mikey and Nikki. Like that's one of the most talked about like letterboxed movies. So I'm trying to like account for that, but also not too much. So I'm going with Princess Bride first then Mikey and Nikki, then Wings of Desire, then Shark Tale. I don't know why you would log Shark Tale. You know what I mean? It's like, <laughs> who's going back to Shark Tale? Who is going back to Shark Tale? Um, to, all the, to all the Shark Tale heads out there, um, you know you know who to target. Uh, but, okay, excellent. I got your order here. Uh, Jason, you're, you're up next. Lay your order on me, daddy-o. Clarify, this is reviews or logs entries uh, like just the entries. number of times the movie is is logged okay uh then i'm gonna go with uh princess bride i'm gonna go with shark tale uh we're going one two three four um i should have clarified uh number three mikey and nikki and number four wings of desire gotcha 
perfect. So, yep. So, yep. One, two, three, four, most of these. Okay. Excellent. Perfect. Um, I got you down here. And finally, Kelly, your order for us, if you please. The letterboxed factor is kind of throwing me because I don't know what Shark Tale is, but it sounds like a little kid movie. And I'm guessing it made a lot of money because I think a lot of little kid movies do. Yeah, DreamWorks. Yeah. Uh, DreamWorks animation. But I'm guessing that doesn't necessarily translate to letterbox logs. So I'm going to guess Princess Bride, number one, Wings of Desire, number two, Mikey and Nikki, very beloved by film Twitter. Uh, Great movie, but maybe not super popular in the grand scheme of things. And then Shark Tale last. Gotcha, gotcha. Okay, perfect. So thank you, everyone, um, in advance for participating. Uh, This has been The Falcon, Our Stars. The correct order of popularity going by number of letterboxed entries is as follows. The Princess Bride. um, Shout out to everybody here for getting that one right. The Princess Bride. Shark Tale. Wings of Desire, what? Mikey and Nikki, which I believe nobody got more than two correct. And I believe uh, the current standings, um, feel free to check my math, but we've got uh, from uh, top to bottom, we've got Jason with four points, Harry with three, and then Aaron and Kelly both with two apiece. So shout outs. I thought yeah. the film hipsters would, would carry me to victory on this one, but I was, I think they may They'll, have kids uh, and uh, have seen Shark Tale. <laughs> And if we can get a clean read of this, Aaron, uh, the film, hip, uh, excuse me, <clears throat> clean read, like I said, the film hipsters will always let you down. So just food for That's thought true. on that. I don't think uh, we well, they've, let, they've let me down this time. Uh, they need to get a podcast with 103 followers. Um, maybe we'll. Maybe we'll get a couple with the Kelly bump. Uh, speaking of, thank you very much, uh, one, Cody, for another rousing uh, game of Cody's Noties, and two, thank you very much, Kelly, for being on our podcast. Uh, where can people find you? Uh, I'm on Twitter at Kranzakaga underscore and Letterbox at Lucky Hoss, and I really appreciate you having me on. I love this movie, and it was really, really, really fun to talk about it with you guys. It's been wonderful getting to know you through the trilon and do let us know if there are any other movies playing there that you'd like to check out uh, and talk about. Cause as you can tell, we're pretty open to guests and would love to have you back uh, for now though. Let's uh, let's give our outros. Um, this has been Trilove, a literal roundtable podcast. You can find the Trilon at Trilon Cinema uh, on most social media. You can find them at Trilon.org, uh, where you can also buy tickets and find other cool ways to support them in um, what will probably, as we head into winter, be an even weirder time than it has been. Uh, but for right now, I'm Jason Daphnis. You can find me on Nintendo. Oh, Jesus. On Twitter at Nintendoofus. Hit it. Uh, good work, Jason. As always, legitimately, thank you for um, being you, and congratulations on the win today. I've been Cody Narvison. You can find me on Twitter at Cody underscore BH. Yeah, you know, thanks so much, Kelly, for being on. That was that was great, a pleasure. It it really it the worst thing about this is that he was then magnanimous about his victory. He just sort of professionally transitioned into the outro like we wouldn't even notice. No gloating. But you were in Discord, pal. You were gloating before the movie was even finished or before the podcast was even finished. So you don't get to you don't get to act like you're better than it all. Uh I am not better than it all. I'm Harry Mack, and you can find me on Twitter at Shtakieri. Uh, my name is Aaron. I, I I trust the numbers. Turns out Jason is the best among us. So uh, congratulations. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at RB Please. No more roaming back and forth through the centuries as in the past. Now I can only think from one day to the next. My heroes are no longer warriors and kings, but things of peace. 
one just as good as the next, the drying onions as good as the tree trunk that grows in the marsh. But no one has thus far succeeded in singing an epic of peace. What is it about peace that its inspiration is not enduring? Why is its story so hard to tell? Must I give up now? If I do give up, mankind will lose its storyteller. And once mankind loses its storyteller, it will also lose its childhood. Sound absurd, but I can hear the most melancholy sound I ever heard. Walk and cry.